I am Pastor Michael. We're doing a sermon series in the book of Deuteronomy. And today we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. And chapter 7 is a set of instructions that Moses gives to the people of Israel concerning the conquest of Canaan. And so this whole passage is about war. It's about the rules of engagement. It's about military strategy. That's what it's about. So if you could turn with me to page, uh, I don't even know what page, but turn with me in your bulletin. I'm going to read to you Deuteronomy chapter 7. Um, we're actually going to jump in the middle of the passage, starting at verse 12. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 11. I'll read it to you. You can follow along. And because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples, There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew will he inflict on you. But he will lay lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods for that would be a snare to you. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. This is the word of God. So I have four points. Here's my outline. Number one, we're going to ask, is warfare a Christian activity? Number two, we're going to look at, uh, to the victor belongs the spoils of war. Number three, the battle belongs to the Lord. And then number four, 
the war will take a lifetime. So let's begin. Let me let me pause. Pause to catch my breath. No other reason. Um, so number one. Is warfare a Christian activity? So let's be very clear about what this passage is talking about. This is not describing some gentle migration of peoples and then, you know, assimilation and peaceful coexistence. This is talking about a military invasion by Israel in which the indigenous peoples were put to the sword and then their land was seized and occupied. We see this in a sharp relief in verse 16 at the end of the first paragraph. It says, and you shall consume. The Hebrew word there literally means to eat, right? As in consume a meal. You shall consume all the peoples. This is talking about the Canaanite tribal peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you Your eye shall not pity them, right? Show them no mercy. Neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Now, when the text says you are to consume the peoples, what are we talking about? We are talking about the absolute destruction of entire people groups, including non-combatants, women, children, the elderly. And we see this, for example, in a passage like Deuteronomy, chapter 2, verse 34. Uh, We looked at this several months ago. This is the defeat of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, which is part of Canaan, right? This is, uh, if you remember, this is the Canaanite lands east of the Jordan River. Let me read you verse 34. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. No survivors. But what do we do with a passage like this? Because it violates our deepest moral intuitions. And not only does it seem incompatible with Jesus' high ethic of love and you know, forgiving your enemies, but even by secular standards, these would be considered war crimes. These are violations of the Geneva Convention. These are crimes against humanity. Now, there are two popular responses to this. The first is people say, well, doesn't this disprove, doesn't this discredit Christianity? Because it confirms our worst suspicions about how religion, particularly fanatical religion, leads to violence. Because religion says, I have the truth, you don't have the truth. Unless you agree with me, unless you convert to my religion, I'm going to kill you. So that's the first sort of popular response is to reject Christianity. The second popular response is people say, well, that's just the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament is filled with all kinds of strange and disturbing stories that reflect a kind of outdated, outmoded um, ethic. But the Bible evolved. And then when you get to the New Testament, you get to Jesus' teaching on peace and nonviolence and 
turn the other cheek and so forth. And it's the New Testament that counts. You can, you can ignore the bad parts of the Old Testament. So that's the second popular response, which is to sort of modify Christianity. The problem, the problem is, first of all, and we've talked about this before, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, more than any other book in the Bible. You cannot separate Jesus from the Old Testament. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said not one letter, not even a stroke of one letter can be done away with, but Scripture stands forever. And so at every moment, you see Jesus affirmed the validity of the Old Testament, every text, every letter of every text. And then secondly, if you read the New Testament, you see that it's constantly going back to the Old Testament. It's constantly looking at the story of Israel as an example, as models for us to follow. You see this all over the place. So, for example, you have a passage like 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Let me read it to you. Paul writes, Now these things happened to them. He's talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so the question we should be asking is not, you know, how do we explain away a story like this? How do we minimize it and sort of keep it at safe distance from us? No, we should be asking, how does this story of the conquest of Canaan, how does this apply to us as Christians today? In other words, where do we find ourselves in this story? Because I want you to know this is our story. This is not some remote historical event 16 centuries before the time of Christ to, you know, some Middle Eastern tribe. But in the framework of the Bible, this happened to us. And so the argument that I'm going to make throughout this whole sermon, listen, is that the conquest of Canaan is the master paradigm of the Christian life the master paradigm of the Christian life. And therefore, you have to understand the conquest is not over. It continues today. And we are still fighting to enter the promised land. The key text to understand this paradigm that really shows you how um, it all fits together, the Old Testament and the New Testament as the seamless story, let me read to you Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. We looked at it already in the call to worship, but listen to it again. Finally, Paul writes, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, meaning other human beings, but against the rulers, against the authorities. What is Paul talking about? Listen. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that the ultimate battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against Satan. It is against his regime of sin and death. And therefore, beloved Christians, we are in a spiritual war. And the weapons of this war are spiritual weapons, faith, truth, righteousness. And therefore, this conquest of Canaan, this historical event recorded in the Bible is a physical manifestation of this larger cosmic spiritual war. It is the, the spiritual in, a, in time and space becoming physical. Or think of it this way. Let me give you an analogy. Think about the sacraments. We have two sacraments. We have baptism. We have the Lord's table. What are the sacraments? The sacraments are outward signs of an invisible spiritual reality. In the same way, the conquest of Canaan was an outward physical sign. What was the invisible reality? It's this spiritual war that has been going on since the Garden of Eden between God and the demonic forces of of darkness. This is why in verse 16, Moses writes, your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods. Now, that second part is not a kind of sort of add-on, sort of a throwaway line. Oh, you know, and after you destroy the Canaanites, be sure not to worship their gods. No, that is the whole point. The whole point of the conquest is that it was God's definitive judgment against idolatry. We see that in verse 25 in the third paragraph. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, right? And lest you fall into idolatry, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. If this was conventional human warfare, then it would be about greed. It would be about power then yeah, grab all the gold and silver that you can get, like the Spanish conquistadors. But if it is about divine judgment, then the gold and the silver is off limits. This is completely the opposite of the wars of conquest that we observe in human history. And I'm gonna, we're going to talk about this much more in chapter 9, Um, in two weeks, chapter 9. This is the whole theme of chapter 9, which gives me a lot of comfort because we're going to have many more bites at this apple. If you go into the Deuteronomy case laws, there's all kinds of rules about uh, wars of, uh, rules of combat. So we're going to look at this again and again. John uh, addressed this when he preached on chapter 2. Wade addressed it last week. I thought they both did an excellent job. This is a huge topic. It's huge. 
And we have to grapple with it honestly, and we have to treat the text with integrity. And I'm committed to that. This is why we're preaching through Deuteronomy, chapter by chapter, without skipping anything. Before I move on to my second point, let me make one last comment on this. Um, One of the things that concerns a lot of people, that disturbs a lot of people, is people will say, okay, Pastor Michael, I hear what you're saying. The conquest of Canaan is a model for us as Christians today to follow. Then doesn't that sanction, doesn't that give us permission to use violence today, right? And here's my answer, and please listen to me. The answer is absolutely not. And, you know, the conquest is what theologians call a redemptive historical event. What that means is that the conquest was a unique, non-repeatable, special event in salvation history. It was a one-time event. And therefore, while it has everything to do with spiritual warfare for Christians, it has nothing to do, nothing with physical warfare between nation states today. And you know, I see this all the time because it's very tempting to sort of borrow from the moral authority of the Bible and use it for political purposes. And honestly, I see it all the time. You know, I recently saw it in the news just in the past several weeks. U.S. presidents will quote scripture to justify American military action. And this is not a partisan issue, okay? Because presidents and politicians on both, from both political uh, parties will do, will do this. And let me say unequivocally, that's wrong. It is a misuse of scripture. Because America, and, and I love America. I'm a naturalized citizen, which means I chose to be an American. But America is not Israel. The church is the new Israel. And all the stories and all the text in the Bible about Israel, therefore does not apply to America or any other nation state in this world. It applies only to the church. We must not confuse the kingdom of God with any modern day nation state. The kingdom of God consists of the followers of Jesus Christ scattered across all the nations of the world. Do you understand? So let me go back to the original question. Is warfare a legitimate, rightful Christian activity? And the answer is a resounding yes. I want you to know, you and I, we are at war. A war that is far greater with higher stakes, with far greater casualties than all of the wars in human history. Do you understand that? That's what this passage is saying. So we're going to go through the instructions for warfare. Um, And you see that I've organized them into three paragraphs, which correspond to the next three points. So let's go through them one at a time. So... The next point, to the victor belongs the spoils of war. So if you look at the first paragraph, 
you see this litany, long list of blessings, right? Long life, good health, large and happy families, economic success, and all of the curses of Egypt, all of the decay and the breakdown of living in this fallen world will not touch the people of God. And so what is this saying? It's very simple. This is what life is supposed to look like under God's rule. This is what finally awaits us at the end of the conquest in the promised land. These are the rewards of obedience to God's laws in God's kingdom. I want you to reflect on this because this is really profound. Because what it tells us is that the purpose of God's laws, you know, the reason why you have all of these rules and instructions in the Bible, it's not to stop us from having fun, but it's to give us fullness of life. And unless you understand that, unless you really believe it with your soul, you will not be able to fight this war. Our greatest suspicion, our greatest suspicion is that God doesn't love us and that his rules are designed to constrain us, to limit our capacities. And we're so afraid that if we give our life to God, he's going to crush us. He's going to make us miserable. I once heard this uh, illustration. The pastor said, you know, for many Christians, they think of God like a father who takes his, his son to a toy store. So imagine, like, you know, imagine the greatest toy store in the world. You know, think about F.A.O. Schwartz in New York City um, or something like that. And, and in this store are the most incredible, mind-blowing toys this child has ever seen. And the whole time, his eyes are just wide with wonder. And the father takes his son through every level, every um, uh, floor of the store, through every aisle. He says, look at this, look at that. And then at the end of the tour, he takes his son out the front of the store and he says, I want you to know the reason I brought you here is to let you know I will never buy you any of these toys. I wanted you to see for yourself everything that is forever forbidden from you. What would you think of that father? You would think he's a monster, heartless and cruel. And the pastor went on to say, that's what so many of us think of God. We think that if we obey him, we think that if we keep his battle commands regarding sex, money, power, then we'll be miserable. Because the world is filled with all these wondrous toys. And God says, that's not for you. I want you to know, that is a monstrous lie that Satan has told you. That is the same lie the serpent told Adam and Eve regarding the tree. He told them, God doesn't love you. He doesn't want your happiness, your flourishing. That's why he's forbidden the fruit from you. But I want you to know that God is the source of all of life. 
and his commands flow from out of his character and his nature. And therefore, when you go against them, you're not just breaking arbitrary rules. You are going against the grain. You are going against the very fabric of the universe. And therefore, don't you see God's rules? They are the blueprint of a life that is truly good, that is truly happy. One of my favorite, favorite verses, Psalms 16, verse 11. Listen to this. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you understand? When God commands you, it is for your joy. Third point, the battle belongs to the Lord. Let's look at the second paragraph. In verse 17, it says, If you say in your heart, These nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. So, The reality is that the conquest of Canaan was a completely lopsided war and not in Israel's favor, but in favor of the Canaanites. And there were several things going in their advantage. Number one, the Canaanites enjoyed an enormous population advantage. They were several times larger than the the people of Israel. Secondly, They were situated in heavily fortified military positions. They were protected behind these enormous city walls. And then third, they possessed, the the biblical text tells us, horses and chariots. You have to understand that in the ancient world, a chariot was the equivalent of a modern-day tank. They were basically these armored vehicles that would just sort of mow down ground infantry. Israel, on the other hand, had no horses, no chariots, no advanced weaponry. They were a ragtag group of refugees who had been surviving for 40 years in the wilderness on subsistence diet, living in tents. And therefore, this was a David and Goliath battle, okay? This is why the Israelite spies, after they come back surveying the land, they report There are giants in the land. We are but grasshoppers before them. What is the point? The point is that Israel cannot fight the Canaanites by their own strength. It would be a suicide mission because they are so weak. And therefore, it is God who must fight for them. And therefore, the conquest will be by divine strength, not human strength. Now, let's apply this to our lives. You know, we are so allergic to weakness. We hate it. We will do everything we can to avoid suffering, loss, failure. But I want you to know that if you are a Christian... If you're a Christian, it is precisely, it is actually those places where you are most weak that you can experience the power of God. 
You know, when I look back on my life, I'm uh, 44 years old now. And I've lived long enough to have, you know, different seasons of my life. There were seasons in my life where everything was going right, you know. I was high. And there were seasons of my life when everything was going wrong. And it was really low. And I noticed, when I look back on my life, I noticed that all of those places where I was failing, all of those times when everything was going wrong, all of those times when relationships were falling apart for me, when I was, when I was failing in ministry, like objectively failing in life, and I was brought down so low, I would weep. You know, I would just cry because it was so painful. And I noticed that it was precisely in those moments when I was most weak that the power of God was most evident in my life. I want you to know that if you belong to Christ, weakness is not a place of trauma. It's a place of of renewal and grace. Do you hear me? There's this wonderful passage in um, Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. Israel was backed up against the Red Sea. The Egyptian army um, with their chariots were bearing down on the people. And it looked like certain doom. It looked like they were going to die. It was a slaughter. And Moses says to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Listen to this. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be still. I find that verse incredibly comfort giving. Because if you belong to Christ, if you give your life to him, hear me now. The Lord will fight for you. And his victory will be your victory. And you have only to be still and behold the power of God. I want you to know that the power of God so often will manifest in ways that defy your expectation. If you look at verse 20, it says, The Lord your God will send hornets among them. It's a rather weird battle tactic, right? God is going to send angry bees into the Canaanites. Of course, this is a metaphor, but it's a very revealing image. If you've, if you've ever seen anyone accidentally step on or disturb a beehive, you have seen the panic and the terror that ensues. From these little creatures, I will pause briefly. Right? These bees are these little creatures that induce panic and terror. What is that imagery telling us? It's telling us that God will win the battle, not through brute force, but through something that seems so small and unimpressive. I think that's really profound. Centuries later, God would send his ultimate captain, his ultimate warrior, 
And rather than being this general leading vast unstoppable armies, that's what the Jewish people thought the Messiah would be. They thought he would be a Jewish Alexander the Great. Instead, God sent a babe born in a manger to this impoverished family in this obscure backwater town called Bethlehem. And then the ultimate blow against Satan, his greatest heroic battlefield act is that he would lay down his life on a Roman cross and endure this shameful, agonizing death. And then Paul has the audacity to say in Colossians 2.15, Christ disarmed the rulers and the authorities, the same language in Ephesians 6, and put them to open shame through his death on the cross. And so if God did that through Christ for your justification, why, why do you think he won't do that in your own life, in your sanctification? Don't be so certain that you know that what is happening to you is good, is for good or for evil. You don't know. God means it for your good. All right, last point. The war will take a lifetime. Look with, look with me to verse 22, the third paragraph. It says, the, the Lord your God will clear away these nations before you, little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. So what is this saying? It's telling us victory will not come all at once. One day, eventually, it will be complete and total. But right now, right now, it is gradual and incremental. And that's frustrating because we want a quick and decisive victory without any lingering effects. But God does not do that. Why not? For a very practical purpose that the Israelites are not ready to take full possession of Canaan because a swift and easy conquest would only introduce a new problem. And what is the new problem? The new problem is that the land would be empty. Remember, the Israelites were many times smaller than the Canaanites. Homesteads would go uncultivated. And then wild animals would take over. So that in rapidly clearing the land, the people would be swapping one problem for another. And therefore, God, in his infinite wisdom and goodness, has ordained for his people a progressive occupation. So that gradually, over a long, long period of time, little bit by little bit, through continual, relentless fighting, Israel would learn how to maintain control of the land. I want you to know that this is a picture of the Christian life. It is not God's plan to give you instant and total victory over your sins. You will instead make spiritual progress little by little. It will be a long, slow battle. Let me pause. It will be a long, 
slow battle of sanctification and transformation. And sometimes it will be agonizingly slow. Sometimes you will take two steps forward only to fall one step back. How frustrating is that? Sometimes it will be one step forward and then one step back. And it will seem like, spiritually speaking, you are standing still. And we hate it. I hate it. Because we want instantaneous salvation. We want all of our problems to be solved immediately. And it causes us to cry, to be discouraged, even to fall into despair. And we want to give up. We want to throw in the towel because it's so painful. But I want you to know that if you read your Bible, the Christian life is this constant struggle. Let me read you two passages. Hebrews 4.11. Listen to this. Let us therefore strive. That's the word. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Or listen to Colossians 1.29. Paul writes, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I want you to know the Christian life is striving. It is pushing. It is pressing forward. It is sweat and discipline and work. You know that in the uh, Colossians passage when Paul uses the word struggling, he uses the Greek word agonizomai. (laughs) Can you guess what agonizomai means? This is where we get the English word agony. In the Greek language, it was used to describe uh, the athletic world, athletic competition. It means to contend or to struggle for a prize. Did you know this is what Moses is telling us? This is what Paul is telling us. The Christian life is agonizomai. That's the point. I want to close with three final observations, three final points. Listen to me. Number one, this is really important. Unless you fight, you cannot enter the promised land. Paul says, take up the whole armor of God. There are no civilians in this war. Do not think that passive, lukewarm Christianity will keep you safe. Do you not know we have an adversary whose goal is to destroy us? Peter describes him as a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. And I say this to you because some of you are spiritually asleep. And I want to warn you. Wake up. Join the fight. Second point. Keep your eye on the prize. What is the prize? It's the promised land. It's the new heavens and the new earth. That's our true home. And this life, full of cruelty and injustice, is but a passing shadow. And then one day we will be with the Lord. And His embrace and His smile will be our ultimate consolation. And for 
And for we who have fought the good fight, Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And those words of approbation, I want you to know, will resound in your ears and in your heart forever. Forever. That's the prize. Finally, number three, we fight this war not by our own strength, but as Paul says, with all of his energy that powerfully works within us. We need his grace and his power moment by moment. Like manna in the wilderness, we need his, his, his strength. We need his mercies every day. There's not a day that goes by when we can live without it. Do you understand? I want to close to you reading Lamentations 3.22. Listen to this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Every morning, God gives you his, his mercies and love. Great is your faithfulness. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, the truth is, this life seems awfully peaceful. And for many of us, we have made this life, this life as our home. And we're living for the rewards of this life. And our, and our time horizon is 20, 30, 40, maybe 50 years. And that's our treasure. Lord, give us eyes to see. Help us to see the reality around us that there is a great cosmic spiritual war raging and the stakes are eternal life. Help us to fight with all, with all of your strength, trusting in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.